if you think there's something more complex and ghosts have nothing to do with UFOs and have nothing to do with Bigfoot, <laughs> fine, but then present your idea of why the characteristics are often so similar. Welcome back to Mind Matters, everyone. I'm Harrison Cayley, joined by Elon Martin. And Hello. today we are pleased to have with us Dr. Simeon Hine. Dr. Hine is the author of several books, including the most recent one, Dark Matter Monsters, Cryptids, Ball Lightning, and the Science of Secret Life Forms, and previously Opening Minds on Crop Circles, and a couple others, um, Planetary Intelligence, I believe is the name of one of the other ones, and Black Swan Ghosts. Right, right. Now, Dr. Hine, welcome to the show. Um, Thank you. What's the, I want you to get into a bit about the, the doctor in your title. So what's your history? Um, what's, what's your PhD in and how, if anything, does that relate to what you're doing with your life now? Well, you know, it's very serious. You know, I have this PhD yeah. and it means that I can call myself Dr. Hine. And yes. it's very important to my ego to be able to refer to myself that way. <laughs> and that's why I thought years ago, I would spend years in school so I could call myself Dr. Hine. But more seriously, guys, how it happened was I, you know, as a kid, I used to use my paper route money to buy electronic kits from Heathkit and Radio Shack and build electronic kits. And it was a lot of fun, you know, when you're in high school or grade school, you know, uh, as a hobby after school to put kits together and actually see you could create radios and things like this. And, you know, electromagnetism was always it's still mysterious and it was mysterious then. Um, so I ended up focusing my undergraduate and master's degree and eventually PhD on how are we affected by technology? You know, I mean, we live in an era of unprecedented technological change, or at least it certainly seems that way to those of us now, alive now. You know, it's just, we have gadgets and gadgets. We have more of this than any humans that we know about in recent you know, that we know about ever. And so I really got wondering, how does that affect how we live to have all this technology around us, especially in terms of what does it do to our perception of reality to get increasing amounts of information through a screen? And even back in 1990, before the internet existed as it does now, that was a, you know, it was a, a interesting topic as things sort of sped up and the introduction of cell phones for most of us in the, the you know the mid 90s and so i started looking at technology and it led me to very interesting subjects of fractal geometry and chaos theory these were kind of new in the 90s i mean benoit mandelbrot who had worked for ibm had discovered that there was an alternative type of math not the linear math that we were used to but the mathematics of nature. And Mandelbrot and others like him who discovered this, Douglas Hofstadter, who was previously a physicist before he went into psychology, you know, Gödel, Escher, and Bach, he co-discovered fractals uh, just looking at uh, superconductivity and something called the Hall effect in condensed matter physics. What these guys were suggesting to us was something that I had never considered in, in decades of education, which was the types of math that you and I learned, the way to put together the world in the linear way might just be incredibly limited. There could be phenomena 
beyond what we see and we're biased by the math models we're using. And I could say that with authority because during my PhD, you know, training, I learned statistics and I eventually became a statistics teacher, an assistant professor teaching statistics to undergrads who didn't really like it that much. (laughs) But now that we know more about it, you can kind of see why they didn't like it because it's focused on artificial ideas that nature doesn't really work around all the time, like averages, like the idea of linearity, um, uh, the idea that there's some sort of normalness that you compare your distributions to what's normal. Well, what's normal? There've, there's been a lot of criticism recently of the people that founded uh, statistics, Pearson and others that their idea of normalcy would almost be what we consider to be racism nowadays, like the normal white guy type thing. That's ordinary. And we compare everyone to that sort of idea. I'm I'm quite serious. I've had a subscription to Science Magazine for 30 years now. And even Science Magazine talks about having entire buildings on college campuses renamed because they're concerned about the deeper ideas that these people had. They were eugenicists. Some of them, you know, might have been sympathetic to Hitler, that sort of thing. So once you realize the math models that we learned were based on this artificial sense of normalcy, you begin to be open to the idea, well, what other topics might be real that they didn't tell us about? Mm-hmm. They didn't tell me about in 27 years from kindergarten to PhD. Maybe the whole thing might be off, like in a big freaking way. I mean, and this is how science works, is you inherit certain ideas from, you know, your predecessors, the people you studied, previous thinkers, and you could be like Copernicus and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, maybe we're not the center of the universe after all. And I think every academic discipline has to go through this process, this Copernican process, where you think the unthinkable. You challenge what you're told by the church or Aristotle, who believed that we were literally the center of the universe. And you take someone like Copernicus, who qualitatively just looked at the orbits of planets and looked at some of the ideas and said, it just doesn't make sense. This is It's just simpler to say we're not the center, even if it's a huge blow to our ego. And those ideas that Copernicus uh, suggested, you know, back um, in the uh, the late 1500s, (coughs) it was so controversial, he couldn't publish them while he was alive. He was afraid for his life. These are ideas we now accept as obvious, and every day there are new exoplanets being discovered out there, and it seems that the universe is turning into a multiverse and just getting bigger. And we realize, well, we may be kind of cool, you know, humans, we can do stuff. It's kind of neat. We can have conversations like this and play instruments, but maybe we're not the center of everything. That sort of rethinking of things in that big way goes through every discipline. And I think it has started to go through statistics and a lots of other subjects. So where you end up with when you look at fractal geometry is that nature doesn't work according to lines. It doesn't work according to these ordinary Euclidean shapes, you know, the platonic solids and so forth. It has its own order. And it's actually 
practical to look at that. We wouldn't be even having this conversation without JPEG compression. It's based on fractal. Fractals are basically things that branch off and make smaller branches and smaller branches like trees and cardiovascular system and, you know, blood vessels. Anything that's alive in our physical universe has to have branching structures to, you know, have a large volume in a finite space like blood vessels, like lung structure, like trees and and even clouds and mountain ranges. So there's another type of math that works with those uh, fractal types of structures where you look at the dimensions of things rather than trying to make them fit a line and create artificial averages. The upshot of all this, and I know it's a long answer to your question, but this is where it led. I heard about this thing called remote viewing in 1996. There was a guy in my local radio station, uh, Dr. Courtney Brown, and he actually was studying chaos theory. And I he had written this book, Cosmic Voyage. And I read it, and it was this idea that people had this natural psychic ability. And it, it really challenged what I thought to be true. I mean, I hadn't heard about this anywhere in graduate school or Anywhere in my education, no one had said that psychic ability is even real, let alone that the average person had this. And I was so kind of taken by this idea that maybe this could be one of the fractal types of abilities or phenomena that science hadn't told me about in graduate school that I thought I should go take a class in it. And I did. I went to his institute in Atlanta, Georgia, as in skeptic, but open to the idea maybe this was a fractal type of phenomena. I just was open to the idea there could be a range of phenomena that didn't fit in the ordinary statistical paradigm that we've all been taught. And it led to this entire subject area of paranormal phenomena, one after the other, just like a set of dominoes, realizing, holy moly, this is it. This is the fractal dynamics that nobody taught you about in science unless you were like in math and it could have been an advanced math topic. In other words, what I'm saying to put it in a nutshell, I realized there was bias, bias in science and bias. In and they were ignoring topics. I'm not even talking paranormal topics. I'm just talking ordinary nature topics, things that we see. They were ignoring that in favor of topics that were easily publishable, that would make you look good in front of your grad, you know, tenure committees. Do you see what I'm saying? The entire system had oriented itself around a sense of normalcy for the sake of career security. And that is what all these famous scientists that we know and love were fighting against. Copernicus, Galileo, you know, Einstein, even Newton had interests in subjects that we still say, oh, that well, that was just weird stuff like alchemy. But we have evidence now that that happens. There is nucleosynthesis from cold fusion Lenner experiments. So anybody we think of as a scientific hero was challenging the dogma at the time. And that's how it led me to have a very open mind to subjects that people, even to this day, sort of mock me for, friends and things like this. And, oh, you're interested in this or this. Uh, it's getting less and less because of these congressional hearings and what's coming out about that. Yeah, But it just was the logical outcome, guys, of learning about chaos theory and fractals and realizing you may have a blind spot from kindergarten all the way to PhD. And no one freaking told you there's alternate ways of looking at reality that are scientific. They explain data. 
In other words, the whole system was just too damn conformist going all the way back. I don't know how it started exactly, but there was just a blind spot that we had in the American education system. And that's, that's how this all started. How can well, on the, on the subject of statistics, um, I, I saw an interview with uh, Dr. Gary Nolan recently, and he was talking about um, stuff he does in the lab with his students. And he was talking, he, he made a similar point. He was saying that when you do an experiment and you get a bunch of data and you've got it plotted out, like here's, here's how it should look. And then you've got this one point that's, you know, way off on the edges, that's totally outside of the, the normal distribution. Like normally students are taught, well, well, just ignore that point, you know, or, or, you know, look at things just, or take that out. We'll, we'll leave that one out. We want to just look at the, at the real data that, that is the way it should be. But he was saying, no, like what he tells his students is focus on that point. Find out why that one was outside of the norm, what's going on there, and that that's actually, by by studying the anomalies, um, that's actually how he, he in the past, and and presumably some of his students as well, have, like, have discovered innovative technologies and innovative sciences by looking at the anomalies. He's so, absolutely right. So, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a that's a that's a great I point. Have I have to you... comment on that. This is yeah, what sure. me too in my statistics training, and I hadn't heard that Gary had said that. We call those outliers. Yeah, outliers don't fit your regression line, and when you create your regression line, you want the data points. The more they fit that line, the more you can claim in a peer-reviewed journal article that you're going to submit to whatever journal, and you know it's publish or perish in academia. Mm-hmm. The closer it fits that line, the more you feel like, whoa, I nailed it, right? And we all want to have that feeling when we publish a paper, and it increases your survival value in the academic system. There's only one problem. You could be throwing out outliers that really matter, just like Gary's telling you. And I remember being taught by one of my teachers at the University of Arizona. You know, he said, you know, when you get one dot that's way, just like you're saying, one dot that's way off the regression line, you can just throw it away. I said, why? It goes in because there are always outliers that aren't going to fit. We can't explain the entire, every little thing in the world. We just want the main relationship. You can throw one or two of those out. Well, here's the problem with that. That dot could be COVID. Be when only 60 people had it. That day when they said, oh, there's only 60 people. It's, it's, it's no biggie. We remember that White House event, Larry Kudlow. We've got this. Un- I remember sitting in the living room watching it with my mom. Oh, we've got this. We've got this under control. It's only 60 people. It's in the Northwest, right? Seattle, somewhere. And we know who they are and they're all quarantined. That's your outlier until the outlier goes mainstream. And and this is not new. There's guys like uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb, Black Swan. That's where I got the Black Swan idea from. There's written entire books about this of Black Swan events from this blindness we have to anomalies and tail events. So what Gary Nolan is saying there is serious. It means that we've been allowed as academics to ignore anomalies, even when they're over our nuclear missile silos, deactivating our missiles 10 at a time, as we all know about now, right? Or any of these other encounters people have with things that the system tells you, oh, that's just, you know, that's just Venus. It's a misidentification of Venus. It's ice crystals. It's fatigue factor on the part of the military, whatever excuse they're using. 
because the statisticians have allowed them to do this by throwing out the anomalies until that anomaly becomes a little wave that gets a bigger wave that starts knocking over your freaking sandcastle, as we all saw as kids on the beach, right? Those waves are going to grow and destroy your sandcastle. They start out small as the high tides come in and they get bigger. And that is our blind spot. And you have to be a little concerned. And it turns from a blind spot into a huge media subject matter and you know a investigation when enough of your military pilots start seeing it and they start filing complaints saying we don't feel safe flying our training operations because these objects, we could collide with them. And this is exactly what we see going on right now in Congress. So it's fascinating, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. one of the one of the threads that kind of weaves through dark matter monsters, we'll get to the subject matter of this book in a little bit, but I want to kind of ease into it. But one of the threads that I found really interesting in the book is um, you kind of come back to it at various points. And that is kind of the, the psychology of, of this, the psychology of an anomalous experience, the psychology of being one of those outliers. And the way I've been kind of thinking about it for the last, uh, few months, you know, I've been thinking over the topic is kind of like, a the Overton window in politics, right? Where you have the, you have the window of acceptable, um, well in the Overton window, it's acceptable policy. Um, but you can apply this to, to anything really, um, anything related to, to human perception. You've got the, the realm of the normal, the realm of the, the statistical norm, the, the acceptable. And then there are like degrees outside of that. So there's the, the degree, um, or there's then the realm of kind of acceptable controversy. So this would be things that you can bring up, um, and you can debate them. Um, you know, people might not agree, they might, uh, insult each other, but then outside of that, you've got the realm of the, the kind of the, the untouchable, the thing that you can't even mention, or if you mention it, it's just, it's, it's beyond the pale. Right. And that seems to be not only how our, um, kind of external discourse works when we're having public discussions about things, it also seems to have, uh, to, to operate on almost, a a very basic psychological, like even perceptual level where when you have, well, let's just say you have a lifetime of normal experiences, right? Or maybe you're approaching a lifetime of normal experiences. Now, when you read or, you know, people, you know, who have had an anomalous encounter, they, they, they often tell the same thing. They were often either like hardcore materialist, like debunker skeptics in, in their mentality or kind of like open-minded, but never really thought about it. And then that event happens, that experience happens. And then all of a sudden they say, oh, wait a second. Was I wrong about this my whole life? Because I can't explain what just happened to me. Or, well, before we get to that, you often have accounts of people who will have an experience like that and then just immediately write it off. Like they can have an account where like some part of them knows that was really weird, but they say, oh, oh, well, that must have just been like ice crystals or the planet Venus, you know, even though it looked like it was 300 feet across and it was like probably a hundred feet above my head. Oh, you know, maybe it was a a flock of, of seagulls, um, just, you know, having a, a, a fly in the night. Right. Go ahead. Did you want to jump in there or, okay. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But then, but then you've got the, 
so that's kind of like the, the denial. There's that, okay, that's outside of my window of normal. So I'm just going to come up with a weird explanation to just kind of debunk it for myself. Or you have an experience where you're like, oh, wow, this was actually real. And I've been ignoring it this whole, my whole life. And then you try to tell someone about it. And they're just like you were 24 hours ago. Because if someone would have told you about, about that experience, like literally 24 hours ago, you would have written it off. So now, now you're the crazy one where you're the same person. You just had a really weird experience that was outside of that realm of the normal. Yeah. No, and no. It's so, it's, it's so good hearing you say this. I, this is exactly right. And, and as sociologists, we have names for these sorts of things. Uh, Vietar Zerubavel, Israeli sociologist, called it the elephant in the room. And bigger the elephant, the more you want to hide it, right? Because it upsets the social order. And we have a lot of resistance, just as maybe mammals, to having the social order rearranged. But on top of that, we have these bureaucracies, these political systems, these Overton windows. I mean, it's, yeah, it's just quite incredible to see some of these senators and Congress people endorsing the, U the UAP, UAP can call it something safe now, UAP, UFO issue eminent domain it's quite incredible to see this debate coming going on however it resolves itself and there's a but there's another name we call this and then these are all part of the same phenomena of denial which is hidden events yeah these are things that are happening to many people that are being denied by the mainstream society for whatever variety of reasons and the classic example of that in this case would be child abuse from the 1960s when it wasn't really a real diagnosis until 65. It took two professional meetings, groups of you know law enforcement, pediatricians, psychologists to come together twice, once in Chicago, once in uh, – and Ron Westrom, another sociologist uh, who I met through the SSC Society for Scientific Exploration, has, has written about this. Uh, they had meetings and they eventually agreed, whoa. These kids aren't falling out of trees. You know, they don't just have thin bones structure. They're Someone's hitting them, and it's their parents. And that was a huge, uh, you know, change, like a, like a tectonic shift to accuse parents. Doctors didn't want to have to do this. And so this is the example we use in sociology of things that we know and accept. When you apply it to these other topics, you can see the same process going on. You want to come up with these ridiculous, uh, you know, far-fetched explanations to increasingly explain. You see this in the, the UFO debate. Um, uh, there was a sociologist named C. Wright Mills, and he called this crackpot realism. Is is you claim you're it, arguing a realistic position, but when you listen to what you're saying, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Just like what you said, Harrison, how can you take these witnesses to these huge craft? And these are people that are trained observers, you know, missile security guards and so forth at very sensitive installations. And they say they see these things and yet they're told by their superiors in the military, oh, you know, that was a meteor. Or something, and, and, you know, meteors do not hover. <laughs> they do not make right angle turns. We've been doing this to ourselves for 70 years. It's like we've been, one hand's been hitting the other hand with a hammer. Guys, this doesn't make any sense. And, and it just takes decades to go through this process before the professionals get together 
And it's not even people like me that sort of broke away from the academic system to do my own thing, you know, to create my own company and to teach the things that are important to me and write books without that uh, level of supervision. Uh, It takes those people, the Gary Nolans, who are already successful in what they do, you know, separate from these topics to convene like they did a couple of weeks ago, a conference with Mm -hmm someone from uh, the intelligence agency, David Grush, to create a nonprofit. And then they can bring people together. And they have so much credibility between the two of them that you increasingly attract people that are willing to take a risk to look at the information. And then they sort of form an association. And all of a sudden, it shifts, like you're saying. Mm-hmm. 24 hours. It can change in 24 hours and it will. I mean, we're also connected now with all these ways we have of communicating. This could go back to my dissertation about information technology is information could, it could t- theoretically come across the transom nowadays. That would be shocking. Absolutely shocking. David Grush, I believe has already mentioned it as much as he can without being arrested. Crash retrievals, extraterrestrial bodies, uh, organizations within our government whose task is to locate downed extraterrestrial vehicles and get it before anyone else does using special forces, you know, our military special forces from, is it JSOC or something? One of these special forces commands. Yeah. Yep. So it we're in a stage where a lot of information could come forth in a very short amount of time through different social media channels, through podcasts like this. I don't know when that will happen or if it'll ever happen, but it could, which I think the average person, not those who listen to the show or you and me, because we talk about this, but for the average person, they might find it traumatic to realize that this has been going on. Nobody told you about it. And it's like, going on for decades. You know, some people like Stanton Friedman called it a cosmic Watergate. So yeah, what you're saying is true. And I've actually had friends who've experienced this transformation you're talking to me about in the span of 24 hours, who would talk to me about something, maybe didn't believe it, then have their own experience. So yeah, it can shift that quickly. But one more thing I want to say about this, it's almost like it's built in to denial to have a catastrophic event. And that's really what chaos theory tells us is that uh-huh. small changes can create big events. It's called the butterfly yeah, effect. Yeah. Remember yeah. the butterfly effect? And these were the cool folks from Berkeley and the, the physics groups back then, you know, that were interested in quantum mechanics in the seventies. You remember reading some of those books in the seventies. I read some of them dancing Wulai masters. Remember that? Mm-hmm. And other books like that, that, that came out of like a group of physics you know, folks in Berkeley, I think they had a name for their group, the physics group. They, I think they used a Z or something like that, physics. And uh, anyway, that produced Fred Allen Wolf and Fritz Jov Capra and people like that who wrote the dance, which I read in high school saying, you know, there's a, even back then, you know, there's a sort of a quantum interpretation of reality. And those folks knew, and this is what chaos theory taught me is the butterfly effect is, a butterfly flapping its wings over the Amazon forest in Brazil could affect the weather, you know, in China. Mm-hmm. That's the case. So I think, and I think 
Nassim Taleb, that's his whole point about some of his ideas behind Black Swan events. The reason they're such powerful events is because you've been denying them using your robust statistics models, which is almost like a laughing stock to call anything robust statistics. You know, so it's sort of like a self-created epidemic, a self-created catastrophe. And we all know this from our personal lives. If you're in a personal situation, relationships, people in your lives, and you deny something for too long, when you finally have to deal with it, it's all the more painful or all the more uh, difficult because you haven't built up. It's it's built built up up. and gotten worse. It's built up and gotten worse. So this is what I believe has happened with paranormal phenomena. You name it across the board is the more you try to deny it, it's the more uh, it's like Princess Leia on Star Wars in the first Star Wars movie where she says to Darth Vader, you know, the more you try to crush us, the more we're going to be like grains of sand slipping through your fingers. That's what these topics are like for me. And I'm not the only one to say that. Dr. Hal Putoff from the SRI days with Russell Targ, remote viewing at Stanford Research Institute, and more recently admitting to be involved in these government UFO investigation programs going back decades, as he told us in 2018 in Las Vegas at the SSE Irvin meeting. And he's the one that gets up there and says, this information is coming out because there are too many sensor systems now. The sensor systems are getting better and better. You won't be able to deny it after a while, whether it's on fighter aircraft, satellites, and so forth. You know, in other words, as you get more and more resolution with your sensing equipment, just for national security purposes, you start seeing more and more. You would have to deny more and more. And eventually, and I've interviewed some of the people from the Nimitz uh, incidents, you know, Nimitz, Princeton, the carrier group, the Tic Tac. I've interviewed four of those folks on my own YouTube channel. And, you know, this is sort of what they're telling us. Like they had this advanced radar systems, the Aegis radar that had just been mounted on these F-18s. And it has a better- 20 years ago. 20 years ago, exactly. And it has better resolution than ever. And some of them told me how good the resolution is from some of those craft, aircraft, uh, excuse me, ships in the aircraft carrier group, how far away it could see. I mean, it's unbelievable how far away those things can see things. I mean, I'm just generalizing. It's something like being able to see a grapefruit at a distance of the moon. <laughs> That's how good some of those, I might, might be exaggerating. We we don't want to release any, I'm, I'm just making that up. It's just an example. But That's what we're talking about. So you can see where this is going. The technology increasingly has a higher resolution. You can see more and more. What does that mean? You're seeing more and more of reality. <laughs> The way it really is. It means there's objects up there and nobody knows, to my knowledge, what they are. Either seeing them, whose they are, what they are. But that wouldn't be surprising. I mean, this is what you have when you focus the Hubble Space Telescope or now the James Webb Space Telescope. Uh, farther you start seeing more and more. It just seems like a natural process of science. And you're going to get institutions that exist saying, Ice crystals, they want to go with these, you know, tired explanations that have been used since Project Blue Book, flocks of geese, uh, you know, meteors, or they can even go into a psychological blame the victim explanation. Like there's something that pilot fatigue or it's, you know, it's maybe a type of schizotypal 
disorder and all, all these sort of fake explanations that don't deal with the data. Why? Because radar doesn't have a schizotypal disorder. <laughs> it's radar. It's the most advanced radar. You just spent billions of dollars. You're putting it on your, you're right. You, you see, you're putting it on your aircraft. You can't simultaneously go to Congress, say we have the best technology ever, and then turn around when it's seen something you didn't expect and say, oh, but uh, there's a, a little flaw in it too. It's it's misinterpreting, you know, uh, some uh, uh, temperature inversion. <laughs> as, as, so so this is the issue is we, again, it goes back to your original question, why I got involved with this. You know, reality evolves, technology evolves our understanding. You're going to encounter phenomena that you didn't know about or nobody told you about. And for the variety of reasons, Harrison, that you just mentioned, there's going to be decades of denial around it because uh, humans are usually averse to being ridiculed by their neighbors and colleagues, especially their employers. They don't like the ostracism. No mammals like being ostracized. And these sorts of kind of, it's like a social immune system to deal with topics that the, for some reason the social system feels is threatening in some way. But it's not just that because other societies around the world are a lot more open to this topic. I've, I've traveled around, I've taught remote viewing in Japan and I've talked to people all over. We're the laggards here. In a weird way, the U S became, we're behind the eight ball. We really lagged here. Maybe it'll fix itself. We have a good history of, making progress in difficult areas and maybe we can do this but if you will go around the world i mean other governments and people are much more open about this just to admit they don't know exactly what they're dealing with we're the ones that for some reason want to keep it hidden in the closet threaten witnesses who come forward i've spoken to enough of these people who've handled materials in the course of their jobs for their fortune 500 companies engineers and these are all the companies you and I know as major chemical, industrial, electrical companies. They all do work for the government. This is one of the things that's going to be coming out, I predict. They've all signed NDAs, these engineers. They were given materials and asked their teams, can you make sense of what this is? And they all told me to a T, it's extraterrestrial. I mean, there's just no other. They're just saying that because it's just way too advanced for anything we have. And then when I try to carry on the conversation, follow up. I'm told this could be extremely damaging to me if we continue the conversation. It would be better if you forgot we ever had this conversation. I've heard this many times from ordinary people. They're being asked in the course of their jobs, just with ordinary technologies that like we're used to, to look at this material. It's farmed out to these companies, and they've signed these really severe NDAs with the federal government that they'll never talk about it. And so they literally some I've had I've had some walk out of the room saying this conversation never happened and they just leave. I mean this is at conferences and talks I give. So I know how severe this is and this causes a type of trauma to these people. They must be listening to the news right now saying I know this is real. I had something to do with it. But we all in the United States you can fall through the cracks economically. We all know this is a possibility for each of us and we're all you know, we're intimidated, blackmailed in a sense, actually, 
that if you go too far out on this topic, there could be repercussions, right? And, you know, nobody wants to have that happen in the course of a career. Even I was told, going back to your, you're talking about outliers. Um, I, I was told the same sort of thing in, in a very general way, not with these topics, but, you know, you do want to be successful with this, don't you, Simeon? I mean, you put a lot of time into the graduate career. You do want to have a successful career, right? Well, then stick with the main topics, you know, don't go too far out, stuff like that. And that's just sociology. So there's just a lot of pressure to toe the line. But eventually society gets to the point where it's like, doesn't make sense. Like, this is cuckoo. Like, you got your own pilots of all stripes, civilian, military pilots. Anyone who's actually been in the military anywhere has come across this. And I've spoken to many of them. And they just say, you know, I, I, can, I have two stories. One, I can't mention to you. And I can't even tell you why I can't mention it. So you never hear about that one. Some NDA was signed. And the other one said, well, this happened. This light followed us. This, we all looked at it on the ship. Said, this is just out of the bounds. Anyway, you get the idea. That's where we are right now. (laughs) Well, I I just wanted to get back to a point you made a moment ago, Simeon, because you said um, that there seemed to be a greater openness, at least uh, in regards to remote viewing in in other uh, places that you could sense. Uh, as opposed to the U.S., and then you mentioned um, just following that how how uh, deeply secretive uh, the U.S. is on on these subjects, especially where it comes to exotic materials and technologies. And um, would you say that the U.S. has uh, monetized and and perhaps even uh, weaponized all this technology? To such an extent <clears throat> that there's a kind of a uh, sick or um, pathological, if you will, uh, uh, overarching need to control this information and, and everything that is um, connected to it, even in terms of ideas? Yes, I would say so. Uh, that is exactly what's going on. And, and we can... We can understand this just from the history of the Cold War since World War II. And I can say this, my dad was in World War II. He was at D-Day. He served in the 1st Infantry, and he landed at Omaha Beach. So we all know the consequences of some of these conflicts in the past, what could have happened, you know, alternative historical trajectories. For whatever reasons, the perception of the Soviet threat in the 50s was so severe it created this national security system we live under now, where the government can literally slap a gag order on your innovations and your research. They can issue a national security order if they feel that you're working on something that has national security implications. And I'm told it's been issued over 5,000 times since that legislation was created in the 50s, national security order. Uh, so there can be like these black holes of knowledge as a result of this classification. And maybe we would say overclassification. It, it's a debate we need to have. Uh, and Congress has to be the ones to do it. If we've overclassified all this so much, and again, if we go back to the 50s when I wasn't alive, and but I do remember those drills where it was duck and cover, you hide under your desk or go down in the basement. The, the youngest kids would go into the basement of the elementary school and you'd cover your heads and wait for the air raid siren to, you know, the, just the test to be over. The fear back then could have been so severe that 
there could be a thermonuclear war, you know, the Red Scare. The fear of that was so severe that uh, it created this national security directives to uh, compartmentalize information and to decide what was of national security interest and what could not be allowed to be discussed in public or worked on in public. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me what happened was, even though the Cold War gradually went away, the Soviet Union dissolved, Eastern Europe ceased to exist the way it was under the Eastern Bloc, right? That the national security uh, architecture that was designed to make us all safe from the people that were around them, the Dr. Strangeloves, of the world at the time who felt that they were protecting us, right? That didn't dissolve because the perks of being involved in these classified programs, the the gravy train was so strong that it didn't dissolve. It's like secrecy creates more secrecy, right? That that it's that old Latin saying, who guards the guards? And this is uh, the issue. My, it's something my dad used to say all the time, who guards the guards? So that's really the question, is who does guard the guards? And, and people who've been in these special access programs have told me they're over-compartmentalized, even for the people working in those programs, because you could come up against uh, some sort of technological or scientific challenge, and there's no one to talk to about it, because you're not allowed to go outside the program. You can't talk about it. And you can't even talk about it to the guy at the next desk, the guy or gal at the next desk. You can't talk to them. So where when you have a you come up against a, a, a roadblock in your research, it's part of any sort of research. You can't have a discussion like we're having right now. And so it gets stovepiped. And then it doesn't go anywhere. And then you have all these people and they get older and they pass on and they can't tell anybody what they knew. So it creates this scientific impasse. And it could create, again, what Hal Putoff called the Sputnik moment. That's what he called it at that 2018 lecture. The Sputnik moment is what we experienced in the 50s in the US, I believe it was 1957, where the Soviets launched satellites before you even have them. Because they were more advanced than we were in uh, microelectronics. Uh, they actually, they're in, they had very, you know, they're very good scientists over there. They've always had very good scientists over there. They were more advanced and they got ahead of us. And one day you see Sputnik going overhead and you don't have anything like that. And that's the Sputnik moment is they could be listening to you and you can't listen to them. So it creates this huge, you know, uh, research program, everything that Eisenhower did, National Defense Education Act, National Defense Transportation Act, they actually built all these highways across the US as part of this Eisenhower's National Defense Transportation Act, things like that. They could justify it from that Sputnik moment, scared them so badly, they realized they needed to jump ahead. Well, we're creating those conditions for another Sputnik moment by overclassifying technology. The reason the Soviets fell behind is their political system was so corrupt that, you know, they would imprison their own scientists because they weren't towing the ideological line, right? The Andrei Sakharovs of the world, right? So you're losing your best people because they don't want to tow the ideological line. You have these political litmus tests. 
Well, unfortunately, it seems like the same things happened here in the U.S., but for economic reasons. As these people get involved with these programs, there's a lot of perks being involved with these programs, a lot of money is flowing around, but the problem is the science isn't good. So we're falling behind. And if you have other societies that are more open to this, where they're talking with each other, in at least in term, internally in their own departments and their own organizations, I mean, maybe Jamaica will be the one to reverse engineer technology before we will. Because we're so, look at look at the challenges right now. There's a, a lot of blowback against this amendments to the National Defense Authorization Act, the NDAA. Just to Chuck Schumer's eminent domain uh, amendment, which says that any aerospace company, actually anybody, you or me, that has any technology created by NHI, non-human intelligence, has to notify, I've read it over, has to notify the government within 90 days that they have this material. These are people I've talked to. I'd love to make YouTube videos with them on it, but I haven't gotten any of them to come forward or even talk to me again after their incredible admissions, uh, The uh, you have to turn it over, notify the government, and 180 days, you have to give it to the government, eminent domain. You know the way they can seize property if they're building a highway or something, the government can, any anywhere, to, you know, municipalities say, we need this property, we'll pay you fair value, and we're taking your house because it serves the public interest. They Schumer wants to do this with NHI material, whatever that is. So here's the big question. If this doesn't exist, why would you even care? Why would why would there be any opposition to something which is this pie in the sky, ice crystals, flocks of birds, and misidentifications of Venus? Oh, sw- don't forget swamp gas. If this is just swamp gas, why would you even spend a, a second opposing something about eminent domain for NHI technology? There's also a nine-member review board he wants to have appointed by the president to review the UFO historical record to see what was what was really going on in Roswell. All these other cases that many of us have studied, you know, pretty carefully. So, you know, Roswell, all these other famous famous crash, Hudson Valley UFO in the '80s, where I grew up as a kid in in, the, in New York. Yeah, Phoenix Lights, all this. So, if this is all just swamp gas or uh, of Cessnas flying information. Why would you even oppose it for one second? Why would why would these aerospace contractors be donating hundreds of thousands of dollars to the same senators who are resisting this legislation if they don't have a piece of a UFO? And this is where we're at right now. So I think in some ways, folks, the system has redeemed itself. I mean, we have public debate. I never would have believed growing up in New York. Chuck Schumer would have been my senator before the congressman for the longest time, right? It's amazing that he was the one to really push forward this UFO legislation. And we know we can call it UAPs, so we don't get, you know, uh, (laughs) mocked by our (coughs) colleagues by it. Uh, But this is, so you you see where this is going. We're actually having a debate. Maybe the system does work. It's re- it's working and interesting, but why oppose something that doesn't exist? You can't have it both ways. So this is, you know, going back to your question about uh, the technology and so forth. Um, you know, it it's 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 a really serious issue that people that have been involved with this have. It's so compartmentalized, and the penalties I'm told are so severe. One guy told me, "If I told you about this, they would find me." This is what he said. He said, "Even if I hid." in the deepest parts of Siberia, 
this I can't I'm I'm telling you literally said they would level Russia to get to me. Can you believe it? He handled something. This is not ordinary technology. And let's just be honest here. There are national security implications. We don't want the people that are opposed the way we live, what we call adversaries. We don't want those people getting this before we do. Uh, so I, I totally understand the national security parameters of this. I think what we're saying and what the UAP caucus in Congress is saying, those senators and Congress people have come together over this. Yeah, we understand right now with the technology we have, we don't want to give anything away that could be immediately advantageous in a military security uh, arena. But what about decades of what about Roswell? What about all these Aztec? What about all these other what about Betty and Barney Hill abductees? What about going back decades? Surely we can talk about that. Or can't we? Is there still something about it? Just like the JFK records where it's just so sensitive. AKA someone's going to look bad if we, yeah. <laughs> we someone's going to look bad if we reveal this. So we're just going to cover it up for another, what's it? Tw- till 2067 or something. We're just, you know, what is the difficulty of going back 70 years? Oh, that's longer than any of us here on the call are, uh, you know, right here are, have been around. Why, you can't talk about something from 1947. Anyway. There's a lot of contradictions here, and it it it's, it it permeates these topics in the most fascinating way, fascinating way. But it's healthy. This is who we are. We're we're Americans. We have discussions. We have an order. You know, when I was on a debate team in high school, there's something called Robert's Rules of Order. Robert's Rules of Order designed for people who are bitter opponents to at least have some basic rules to have a debate, right? In, in Congress or wherever. Yeah. And we have Robert's Rules of Order. So this is what makes us different than other countries. Other countries don't have Robert's Rules of Order. If you oppose the main political party, they're just going to kill you or imprison you forever, as we know happens in these other totalitarian sort of countries, which we call adversaries. But we have this process here. Let's take advantage of it. Well, so in a sense, um, so what, what, we've, what you've been describing in terms of, in the terms that I was using of the Overton window, we've seen UFOs enter the the realm of i think i think it's overton's window there are two different like uh two different um ways of looking at it there's someone's someone's spheres i can't remember the name but anyways it's a similar concept so we've entered ufos have entered the realm of of legitimate controversy so this is something that that's allowed to be taken seriously now on like by news anchors and in and in congress so you see people um, talking about it and they don't have to, um, smirk or make a, you know, make a, uh, uh, like some kind of, yeah, a little comment like that. I mean, they, they still do most of them, but, um, but the, but, but it's entered that realm of, of controversy. So it's allowed to be talked about, but then this goes back to something else you said, um, you know, why is the U S seem like they're so far behind in this area, um, in this kind of openness and transparency area, I think it might have to do with it's well, my thought is that it's probably because they know the most. Um, and it's been, a it's been a pause. It's been a, like an actual policy since like 1953, since the Robertson panel, that that there is an official or there has been an official on some level policy of debunking and and denial. So what what essentially happened in like the late 40s and early 50s is is you had this this split in society 
like the the mainstream and like normal split and then the pe- the the people that were were willing to look at this and it's while they've developed alongside you know while they've developed kind of as one larger society in another sense they've they've developed on along these parallel lines where if you look at the the history of ufology since the 1940s the history of the, the people that have looked at it or taken it seriously you, you see th- there's been like there's a whole history to it you start out with well first of all when you look back at early cases the early cases are probably as weird as the cases in the last like 20 30 years but what happened in ufology is that it took decades and decades for ufologists who have like open minds and are willing to look at this thing to even be open to the weird stuff about UFOs. So you started and it was just like, it was just uh, lights in the sky and like moving objects and structured craft, you know, that are, were out there. But then a lot of the, like the early ufologists would, um, would reject any, any landing cases because landing cases, Oh, well, you know, UFOs are, are okay as long as they're up in the air, but landing, you know, I'm not sure about that. And then occupants, you know, with the, 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 the pilots like walking around, well, okay, no, that's a bit too far. You know, I can, I can handle UFOs in the sky. I can maybe even handle uh, a landed UFO, but, uh, but an occupant, you know, that's a bit too far. And there's always something that's a bit too far to, to, to accept. But the history of ufology has been like steadily over the decades as there's like an ex- part gets established, then, then they're kind of open to another new thing. So like in this, in the seventies, it was finally, we had, well, in the, in the mid sixties, we had, you had the the first reports of abduction. So, you know, Betty and Barney Hill, you mentioned in 1961, well, it was 65 when it was first published and people started knowing about it. And then it wasn't until like the seventies that it kind of, the, 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 the field kind of took it more seriously. And then it wasn't until the eighties when it kind of like blew up and Whitley Strieber wrote his book and it kind of got mainstream attention. And so there's all these it's like progressive like initiations into this new reality that take place, but it's been taking place totally separately. So you have, you, you follow like people who are into ufology, they, they can accept like a whole bunch of stuff, like a whole bunch of weirdness. And then of course, in like, in, you've got the hunt for the, for the skinwalker in 2005, where it's like that kind of, even though people had been talking about the whole range of paranormal, like weird phenomena that is it's associated with UFOs, um, you know, that book by, you know, Knapp and Kelleher was probably the first kind of like mainstream book that kind of presented it all there. And then you have the, then you have the OSAP program with, from like Bigelow and Lukatsky and Kelleher and, and all, all those guys where they're studying everything. Right. So we've had these two parallel tracks and the one was kind of like, has been stuck in not even, not even acknowledging that there is any reality to an anomalous light in the sky. So it seems to me that what's been happening over the past six years since, you know, 2017, when this first re-entered the, the mainstream debate is that we've been kind of recapitulating ufology in the mainstream or the history of ufology in the mainstream. So it's like someone was thinking, okay, if we want to like actually get this into the mainstream, w- we've already had a, an Overton window expansion like we've got, we've got an example that's actually like an experiment that's run in real time over the past 70 years. Let's just re redo that in a telescoped time frame. We start with the anomalous, like lights and structured, structured craft. Um, and then as that gets accepted, oh, maybe we can accept it that maybe these things crash. And, and then, well, so, so my prediction is that once those things are established, then we'll get into abductions and then we'll get into like, you know, dog man at the, at the skinwalker ranch. Right. And which leads us you know, through, through, through the Overton windows leads us to, um, to your, your most, yes, exactly. Because one more thing before I, I give you the floor, 
<laughs> exactly. Because one thing, one thing that you'll often see, like with UFO, with even people who are into UFOs, it's like, okay, well, I can accept UFOs, but Bigfoot, it's like, mm. I was one of those people, guys. <laughs> yeah. I totally right. understand this coming out. I, I, this is what you're saying is totally correct. Okay. This it's exactly like that, but it's like that in a fractal way. We each recapitulate, you know, ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. I can't remember what that means anymore. But the idea that, you know, uh, there's this recreation process within each biological organism. And, you know, we go through these stages in the embryo where we resemble chickens and then, you know, different animals and kind of look like humans because it's the same sort of instruction code. Uh, We each have to go through this process. When... My remote viewing class, one of the last ones I taught before COVID, I had four women in my class here in Boulder at this office complex I used. They invited me to the Bailey Sasquatch outpost, which is just about an hour and 15 minutes away. And I turned them down. I, I, I Even Bigfoot for me, even though so many of my students in Colorado had talked about encounters over decades, here and there, you go out to lunch and it, it would like be... What? I mean, I didn't know how to make sense of it. Even when they'd have a Bigfoot lecturer at UFO conferences, and it wasn't Stan Gordon. He was lecturing about Techsburg at these UFO conferences, Techsburg 65 crash. There was a part of my mind said, why is a Bigfoot, why is a Bigfoot lecturer at a UFO conference? So that's my own um, narrow-mindedness, right? I mean, you we all we can't just jump to these other outer realms the twilight zone aspect of it too quickly, because what happens to your mind is it starts getting really confused really quickly. <laughs> I, I know as someone who's experienced that there's a weight of evidence that builds up, at least for me, it did. And it's talking to people, people at conferences, people in your remote viewing classes, uh, people at your lectures who come up to you and tell you things, right? Different programs they've been in. It happened to me, even learning remote viewing in, uh, Years ago at Farsight, there were people there who had worked with NASA who talked about a cover-up, who talked about seeing structures on the moon in the course of their work with film, NASA film, things like that. Uh, shuttle astronauts who talked about uh, there being you know, some sort of alternative space program, things like this. It's, it takes a while for all of us to sink in. It's even slower for bureaucracies and organizations, which are made up of people, but they have their own dynamics. If you take what you're saying and you just look one book, Stan Gordon... I've interviewed him twice, most recently, last October. He's been doing this since 1959. He was the telephone receptionist for the Westinghouse informal, the guys that would meet after work at Westinghouse in Pittsburgh, including Stan Friedman. And he was the kid who agreed to be the the phone receptionist for these calls. He said the phone hasn't stopped ringing since 1959. His phone, his UFO hotline. He wasn't looking for Bigfoot. He was a UFO receptionist for this informal group of engineers that were interested in subjects. Perhaps some of them, like Stanton, had worked on projects. So they knew a little about what was going on. He said the first Bigfoot report coming in with UFOs happened in 1965. And I would have been one of these people, even a number of years ago, that would have questioned that, thinking, well, as people often ask me, well, UFOs are these advanced space technology and Bigfoot are these primitive relic primates. Why would they have anything to do with each other, right? 
And I think my mind was sort of working along those lines until you start talking to witnesses and you, you realize that those paradigms just don't make sense. First of all, you talk to someone like Jacques Vallée and he will tell you they're not, these UFOs are not metal spacecraft with little guys in them that came from another planet. It's something deeper than that. Why? Because the people start having experiences before the sighting, remote viewing type experiences, telepathic type experiences. Things, things start happening around the home before the sighting. And then after the sighting, they're left with ability sometimes that they didn't have before. Things have changed. So there's another, maybe call it multidimensional component to it that just doesn't fit a structural object. And then when you take something like Bigfoot, obviously, you start looking at the evidence. And as you saw in a flash of beauty, paranormal Bigfoot, there's and this is what started happening to me. I, you go to a conference at Bailey or something, Sasquatch Outpost, and you hear things that don't fit the paradigm that you were led to believe, even by people that you heard uh, being interviewed by Art Bell on Coast to Coast, you know, who would say, well, it's just this very rare ape, you know, it's a very rare primate came over the Bering Straits and there's just some of them left over from, you know, the, not, not at all. They, they, they orbs invisibility, anyone who's been involved with this, or you immediately start hearing this from witnesses and you hear that the mainstream reporting organizations have edited out those aspects of their reports. So uh, Harrison, just like you're saying, Harrison, I mean, even within these disciplines, and it's partly because there's an economic component, and I don't blame, I'm not saying that's wrong. Anyone who puts on conferences has to recoup their costs, right? Or you won't be doing conferences very long. So you do need to fill the seats, but these organizers are in a double bind. They they do love these subjects, but there's an economic component to not wanting to alienate your audience or even going farther, telling them what they want to hear. Well, you you did go a lot farther with your book. And what there are a couple of things that are so interesting about it to me. Uh, we're talking about um, dark matter monsters. Uh, and that is that it it wasn't only a book about all the really super strange phenomena surrounded by Bigfoot encounters and sightings, which I had very little knowledge of up until reading it, most of your book. Um, but you do something, it's almost as though uh, this book that you wrote is a point of departure uh, from which you you make the case that some of these phenomena have been witnessed by physicists working on uh, cold fusion uh, technology and and all sorts of other things, uh, orbs of light and and changes in, in gravitation and small black holes, all of these various things that have been uh, seen or experienced to some degree or another uh, accompanied by what book is that? Uh, Takiyaki Matsumoto steps to the discovery oh. of electronuclear collapse. Just a perfect example of what you're talking. About. Yes, and and someone you you quote quite a book uh, a, a lot of in your book. Um, so so you do those two things in this book. You 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 establish all of this really strange phenomena around the Bigfoot uh, that I that was totally new to me. But you also make this. You also bridge it. Uh, for your audience, you you bridge it. Um, uh, you bridge the phenomena to cutting edge science and phenomena surrounding science that we know that that physicists are working on, and and so you're saying 
in effect, you know, there's something there. There is a, there is a scientific reality to the Bigfoot uh, or something that might be explained if we were more advanced in science and, and we're studying this uh, with greater depth. Um, and, and it doesn't have to be relegated to the realm of folklore or, uh, or, or, or so-called so urban paranormal legend. phenomena or urban legend. Um, so what are, cause what, what can you tell us? Uh, what, what can you say so far has been like one of the most, or a few of the most compelling things that, that modern cutting edge science has in common with, uh, in, in explaining the Bigfoot phenomena? No, that's a really good question. Um, what, what was your first name again? Elon. Elon. Elon, it's a good question. Um, no, it's a, it's a really good question, Elon, because uh, the, these things come together because if you're researching these areas, you start to see these parallels um, between these phenomena. And it's not like you're forcing it to fit together. It's just too much of a coincidence to be reading into research in condensed matter physics. Again, I've read Science Magazine ever since my graduate committee in WSU said, you should have a subscription to science. There's a good sociology article in there once in a while. You start seeing from there into what witnesses are telling you they're seeing around Bigfoot. And then you look at the research around cold fusion, Leonard, uh, Winston Bostick, going back to the 50s, worked for the Atomic Energy Commission, finding peaceful uses of nuclear power. And then even going back to Tesla, who we've all heard of, but, you know, has a sort of mythic sort of stature in American history, but he's the inventor of fluorescent light bulbs and AC power and all this. I mean, he's sort of a part of our lives, but we forgot about him for a variety of reasons. You start looking at this and you realize we're dealing with a mass hidden event here. For the reasons that we've been talking about on this show, it's it's remained in, in the realm of classified special access programs because of the situation we find ourselves in in the U.S. So that it hasn't really reached the level of discussion even amongst scientists. So when I was looking into these Bigfoot phenomena and I'm reading about the way Fleischmann and Pons, you know, did their work, the two guys at the University of Utah in 89 that were basically driven out of the country for saying there was something called cold fusion, that they had discovered it on a their laboratory, a tabletop room temperature device. You know, when you look at these phenomena, and finally the third piece of the puzzle comes together, people like James Lukatsky write a book, Skinwalkers at the Pentagon. And you have people like James Lukatsky, John Ramirez, former CIA, uh, uh, you know, technical officer in, in missile, missile analysis, analysis of missile systems, electronics of, you know, adversaries, missiles, and they're saying the same thing, uh, you realize that there's just been an area, there's sort of a, a simplification that could happen, where instead of saying we're dealing with lots of separate phenomena, like the Ptolemaic system, which had epicycles and equants and little invented things to try to explain why you had this retrograde motion in planets, and you know they had created these very complicated models to explain, you know, because they're on their own orbits and they're all going around the Earth, you know, these very complicated Ptolemaic systems, which worked, but was just too complex 
and didn't turn out to be the case, you can just perform this simplification and say, these phenomena are variations of the same thing. In other words, gravity and acceleration are the same thing. Back when Einstein made that statement 100 years ago with his general theory of relativity, that would have seemed weird to people. But he just said, look, unless you can show these phenomena are really separate, we have to assume they're the same thing. And hence, gravity and acceleration, what we perceive as gravity, and you perceive in a car when you accelerate, Einstein was saying those are the same forces. That's a type of unification and simplification. When you look at these phenomena and you hear John Ramirez talk about stealth plasmas, UFOs that could take on invisible forms, and he's talking from someone that worked in the CIA who's been told he has permission to talk about this, or at least no one's told him to stop talking about this. And they can see this with their keyhole satellites, stealth plasmas. And you read about James Lukatsky and some of the people at Skinwalker Ranch encountering these black orbs that generated these strange feelings of fear and strange electromagnetic effects. And then you look at some of the researchers in cold fusion and what's now called low energy nuclear reaction, because it's not literally cold fusion, but it means something like that, but it wasn't quite the way uh, we, we had thought about it. And people who did the unification, it wasn't me who did it. It's people like this saying, you know what? What we call cold fusion, Leonard, is actually microball lightning. And he had the video of this in his lab, of these microball lightnings moving around the cracks of these cold fusion experiments. And you have someone like Matsumoto saying, all this is is a type of gravitational collapse caused by electromagnetic attraction. And it creates voila, ball lightning, microball lightning, uh, space-time distortions nucleosynthesis, and other really sort of odd things that you could ignore and say, that's just weird. It's an outlier, <laughs> Harrison. But people like Matsumoto did a type of unification that Einstein did with E equals MC squared, basically. He's saying these aren't all separate phenomena. Earth lights, orbs, ball lightning is the same at the macroscopic scale as it is on the microscopic scale. Once you start looking at the so-called paranormal phenomena, for lack of a better word, and you see these things happening around UFOs, right? And Harrison, you were talking about the gradual evolution of UFOs. Remember that 1973 report from one of those UFO organizations, Year of the Humanoids? Remember that? I've read through that with fascination many times. It was one of these nightcap publications. Where they, you know, it's, there was this wave in 73. Stan Gordon talked about it. It hit Western Pennsylvania. Waves of Bigfoot being seen around UFOs. It was across the country uh, for whatever reasons. And you hear about these waves of humanoids and so forth. You start looking at the phenomena people experience there. Their watches stop working. You know, cars stall. Missing time, right? And you see these happening around Bigfoot witnesses. And I see it happening around crop circles, which is something I got involved with purely out of doing remote viewing. You want to go visit the target site that you had the session on. What is it? You go over there to the UK and you start seeing battery camera failure of electronics orbs missing time, right? And then you look at these cold fusion researchers and they say, it erased my credit card. <laughs> the little reactor erased my credit cards. There were some oddities around the reactor we couldn't quite describe. 
And you finally read, dig and dig, and you read people like Shak Parinov, a Russian researcher who said that this is one of the best, that these cold fusion reactors are inherently blurry. You can't photograph them because there's an oscillating permittivity, which affects speed of light. Permittivity being the sort of an electrical constant of free space. Different materials have different permittivity, you know, more conductors versus insulators. You kind of get the idea. Well, Shapkarinov said that cold fusion reactors, because of the ball lightning in there, and other people like Ken Shoulders, Hal Putoff's colleagues, <coughs> talked about this too. When you start seeing them say that it has oscillating permittivity, which means oscillating speed of light, which means you always get a double image when you take a picture of the laboratory-produced uh, apparatus, the ball lightning in the labs and so forth, and they start talking about black ball lightning in the lab, and you hear Lukatsky talking about these dark orbs, and you're looking at Chaparinov's photographs, and he's got these dark orbs lab-produced. You just have to wonder, and I'm the first to admit, maybe there's another explanation. Are we all talking about the same thing, which is fundamental shifts in the structure of space-time based on collapsed electronuclear collapse? In other words, the cold fusion people, again, so much resistance to it. The structure of space-time isn't as solid as we thought it was. There could be variable permittivity. And you hear Hal Putoff talking about this, you know, and others talking about this idea of variable permittivity. And you have the Leonard researchers, Ken Shoulders, and others talking about this variable, you know, Takiaki Matsumoto and all the, the Russian scientific community. And they're all talking about the same thing. And you see some of them talking about UFOs and other effects in and around the lab. And then you even go back to the remote viewing program. One of the early books was Remote Viewers by Jim Schnabel. Mm -hmm one of the first books that came out about the remote viewing program. And what's he talking about in that book? Strange effects in the lab while Yuri Geller was around. Cryptid showing up in some of the researchers' homes. Other strange events you're probably familiar with around that remote viewing group, even seeing small UFOs flying around Lawrence Livermore <laughs> Laboratory. It's just natural to, for my type of mind, from my background, just to say, maybe these aren't all separate phenomena after all. Maybe there's some fundamental commonality. And I think it was Kutkin and Renner in their two books, Where the Footprints End, yeah. that might have gotten me going in this direction, right? Two great books. They wrote volumes one and two about the weird effects around Bigfoot. For me, having seen cameras and batteries fail around crop circles repeatedly, even man-made ones like lab-produced crops, where we get permission of the farmer, you know, get on our stomping boards and just make some spirals. To see the same effects around what the Bigfoot witnesses right in the Colorado area were telling me, that their iPhones would die, they couldn't start their cars around the Bigfoot sounds, even if they hadn't seen them very well, just hearing the sounds, and then all of a sudden the equipment starts going out, the strange sulfur smells, which is, by the way, seen in some of these cold fusion experiments. You're just looking at this and you're saying, you got Katsky coming out and Ramirez, you know, to the stars. And you're saying that this is, there's fundamental similarities across Elon. There's fundamental similarities uh, across these phenomena. Maybe just like Matsumoto, maybe uh, they're the same thing at different scales. And that's how you get there. 
And you start looking at more evidence. And as a good scientist, you say, maybe I'm wrong. What's the counter evidence to my point of view? And you start actually trying to see if you can knock your own theory just to be honest about it. So far, I haven't been able to do it. I've, you know, it's been a year and a half since I wrote Dark Matter Monsters. And thanks for mentioning it. It's been in the top five in electromagnetism for a year and a half in on Amazon for a year and a half. Wow. You look at it right now today, it was like yesterday, it was like number two, right next to books about Maxwell's equations <clears throat> and ham radio and Tesla and, you know, basic electromagnetics. And there's a book about Bigfoot. It's quite amusing to me every day to see this and rewarding. But, you know, I've looked to see, could I have been wrong about this electromagnetic theory? Someone that, that experimented with shortwave radio, and I think that's what I have in common with Gary Nolan. He had a paper route. I had a paper. He was in Connecticut. I was in here. He had a sighting. I had a sighting with my mom when I was 13 in the Everglades of something that was really strange overhead. And Gary Nolan had some experience with, with that. So we have something in common there. But, you know, I have, to me, it was the most surprising idea as someone who grew up listening to Coast to Coast to imagine that Bigfoot is actually an electromagnetic creature, non-ordinary electromagnetic creature, which would explain the gliding. The people see them almost like doing a Michael Jackson moonwalk. They see them glide around trees and just have tremendous speeds. I mean, ballistic. There's a term in physics. It's called ballistic energy flow. It's when something has like almost no resistance and it's like focused like a bullet. You hear about this ballistic motion of these creatures. You just have to wonder whether this explanation is much better than the relic primate. For me, it is. And uh, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm happy to people to read the book and come to a different conclusion. I mean, that's what this is all about. Well, um, so uh, dark matter. Uh, an, an idea that that's very central to um, explaining uh, where the Bigfoot may be coming from, or what it may, may be made of, or or what the substrate is that it uh, that it exists within. Maybe um, in in your book, you suggest that dark matter is actually um, it, it actually has a much bigger part in the substance of the universe than we might ordinarily be led to believe. Uh, I watched a, a pretty generic video about the CERN uh, Large Hydron Collider the other day. And uh, in its explanation, uh, they said, well, dark matter makes up, if I remember, only 5% of the universe. But but there's a suggestion that, that it is actually a much, uh, has a much bigger place in, in the substance of the universe. Uh, or a part of the universe. Can you explain that for us a little bit and and why that has such a uh, a kind of area of central importance to what the Bigfoot is or where it may be coming from? Yeah, no, that's a good that's a good question. Uh, in astrophysics, and I, I tell you how I got interested in astrophysics. I went to the University of Arizona, and I was in the sociology department, you know, learning my research methods and statistics. But they had a uh, they had a planetarium there, which the astrophysicists would give a lecture once a week. And I would go there and be amazed by the science I was listening to. And just then in the 80s, dark energy was being discovered. And they talked about Fritz Vicky and dark matter and all these subjects. What they were talking about is now what we refer to as the double dark model, the cosmological model of the universe. 
which is the idea that uh, it's actually not 5% dark matter. It's more like 60-70% of the matter out there is not visible. It's not electromagnetically active. You can't see it. It doesn't reflect light. And then there's another, oh, that would be like 30%. The, the 60% would be dark, so-called dark energy. And these are two forces that have to be there in order for the structure of the universe to look like what it looks like. The dark ener- the dark matter is what would hold galaxies together. There's not enough matter in any galaxies that scientists can see, physical matter, to explain why they just don't fly apart. The, all the, 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 the the uh, rotation of the galaxies and other factors says that there has to be something else there uh, to hold it together, matter that we haven't detected yet. This isn't necessarily one type of thing. It's just matter that has e- evaded detection, except gravitationally. And that's dark matter. And it outnumbers ordinary matter 10 to 1. There have to be 10 particles of dark matter for every one particle of visible matter. Dark energy would be the force that seemingly pushes galaxies apart from this redshift and so forth. And uh, that's observable. Now, there are counter explanations to both of these. There's in dark matter, there's something called modified uh, Newtonian dynamics. And there's other ideas about dark energies. Maybe they don't really exist. But to my knowledge, and I keep up on this every week, those models still are not adequate for explaining what scientists see. And so we're told that this double dark uh, model of the universe explains observations, all known observations from all the telescopes and probes to a T. That there's matter we can't see and it's sort of an energetic force pushing the galaxies apart. So what it really suggests is that we don't know our universe at all. You know, going back to this discussion of paranormal phenomena, we don't even know our own universe. Because when scientists look beyond the Earth and you're looking to explain the motions of planets and galaxies and the uh, characteristics of light, you have to admit you don't know 95% of it. Even the remaining 5%, 90% of that's called non-baryonic, which means it doesn't reflect light. It's physical matter that we would say exists, but it doesn't interact with light. So that leaves a half a percent. Everything you see in these beautiful James Webb, now James Webb telescope photos, you know, these incredible images of distant, you know, nebulae and galaxies and, you know, cosmological objects, that's a half a percent of what's out there. The rest we don't really know very much about. Researchers that looked into dark matter concluded that these relic neutrinos, these uh, relic because they're from the you know origin of the universe. Yeah, they make up a tiny percent of dark matter. It's not like dark matter is just one thing. Maybe that's a percent, one percent of dark matter, something around there. And that we're interacting with them all the time. And they're a catalyst to biological and chemical reactions. More specifically, uh, relic neutrinos would be a component in something that, that Takiyaki Matsumoto said about inverse, a type of nuclear decay, inverse beta decay. There's a beta decay, you know, which is uh, uh, losing its uh, type of, uh, where the uh, you start losing particles from the, the, the uh, atom. And there's an inverse type of beta decay where neutrinos become involved. We don't get too comp- complex about it. 
But the net effect of this is if you have this inverse beta decay, which would which dark matter would seem to promote. And, and we know this from these experiments. If you actually close windows where these cold fusion reactors are operating in, you need to move them around the room every couple of days because they seem to use up the relic neutrinos that are around, something like that. Uh, Alexander Parkamov, uh, a Russian scientist, did extensive research with this home-built telescope that he found all these variations in biological and chemical processes based on time of year. Things that we were taught in chemistry and physics classes should be constant, like radioactive decay. Um, he found variation based on the position of the Earth relative to the Milky Way, relative to the local group, and so forth, which suggested a cosmological component. And he's a former, you know, classified aviation expert, formerly Soviet Union, that turned to cold fusion, which should tell us something right there. And he created this home-built reactor with this surplus Soviet equipment. Anyway. It's people like that that determined there was some sort of cosmological effects on life on Earth. And so the reason I suggest that this has something to do with Bigfoot is, first of all, if most of the matter is invisible in the universe, why don't we, why do we assume we could see everything even here on Earth? I know that's kind of a leap and maybe even kind of scary to think about, but if it's, 99.5% 99.5% invisible out there. What about right here? And this is what witnesses, I don't need to stretch this at all. I just spoke to a witness up in Montana at the Kalispell conference, the Montana Mystery Con, just uh, a, a, two months ago, who told me this was the first conference this person had ever been to in their entire life. And I asked them why. And they said they had seen as a teenager on their grandparents' property in north of Missoula, they had literally, the dog had seen it first and was pointing at it. A small Sasquatch type creature literally wink out in front of their eyes as it, it didn't move. It just pixelated, as she's put it, digitized. And I've heard this from other researchers and witnesses. It's there and you just see it sort of turn into a kind of a shimmery effect, like the predator effect. Again, Harrison, you mentioned Knapp and Carol Keller's book, Hunt for the Skinwalker. Several episodes in that book where the rancher saw what you could only describe as a sort of semi-transparent or mostly transparent creature moving along. There was that case where it moves along in the river and the person driving along and the guy comes out to visit and something comes out from the tree line and knocks him, knocks him down on the ground. They saw it and it runs back to the tree line. Things like, well, here I'm just up at a conference, someone says, I just decided to come to a big one first time in my life. And I had this experience. Well, this is what you see in a flash of beauty, paranormal Bigfoot. Yeah. So, so Elon, to, to kind of go back to your question in my long-winded way, but I just want to get all the facts down. It, it just seems that there's a close parallel to what we call dark matter and the descriptions of cryptids that we have even from law enforcement officers who see them go invisible in front of their patrol cars now i know for the average person this is not what you were taught in grade school that this is real but this is again going back to hidden events this is what we're talking about witnesses telling us they see Mm -hmm. and i don't mean for this to be scary for people i'm not trying to frighten people it's the last thing i want to do but this is reality it suggests that there's types of creatures. I don't know if they're animals. Some of them 
Bigfoot seems awfully human that have an invisibility cloaking factor. And I think we could see why we wouldn't hear about this. This is probably has national security implications, which is probably one of the reasons why OSAP was out at Skinwalker to begin with, right? Is that they realized, like we've been talking about here, that UFOs have other aspects to them. They're not just, you know, metal ships hovering in the sky. There is a terrestrial component. They go to Skinwalker. They discover these invisible types of life forms. And of course, this is what witnesses say they've seen. You know, going back to your point, Harrison, it's sort of this gra- gradual evolution, even for people that study this to accept this. But I, I think that the evidence is quite clear. Is when you go out of your home, there can be these cryptids around everywhere except pretty much urban areas, but they've been seen there too. And for the vast majority of time, it seems they don't interact with us. That's what it seems like based on my reading of the situation, though I could be wrong. And occasionally people see them, and occasionally they're forms that could cause some alarm. <laughs> you you mentioned dogman and so forth. We know why we don't talk about this. This is there's something I wrote about in Black Swan Ghost called the social danger zone. It's another sociological concept. Another word for it is reputation trap which is that most professionals don't want to be associated with topics that would give anyone an avenue to attack their professional credibility because professionals, even people like me with higher degrees and so you've put so much time into the subject that you don't want anything coming along, questioning your credibility, you know, making it look like you're not completely competent. And we know this happens to people. Uh, Again, Harrison, going back to your point about, uh, mockery and uh, and stigmatization of people associated with these topics. There are some people that call it weaponization of stigma when it's a government disinformation program. Something that Richard Doty told me in his interview at the Laughlin Conference on my YouTube channel. He talked about being involved in Air Force disinformation programs. He apologized for it, but said, look, that's what my job was back then. We felt like we were protecting, you know, classified aeronautic technology. So we invented we had actors go to these witnesses' homes to pretend to be. This is literally what he said. He's on that show uh, several times a night, Disclosure Tonight, the podcast on YouTube. He talks about it. Uh, they they would pr- send actors to witnesses' homes to pretend to be investigators to get the evidence and not bring it back. Stuff like this. And other techniques they used to pay journalists in brown bags of bills, a couple thousand bucks to write a story that the Air Force wanted write, you know, written their way, to spin it a certain way. He, had, he said there's just huge amounts of money going to pay journalists to spin it a certain way. Going, this is going back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the show. So in any case, th- these are, I think the data shows us that, uh, that dark matter may not just be something, uh, and I've done some research in this. There was this idea that it's like, if you look at, like you were talking about CERN, it's like something far away out there in the solar system. Maybe there's one particle for every million particles. Of you know, like, don't worry about it. But the more research I did into dark matter and dark energy, by the way, I started reading that it's, this is before I, I knew about Parkamov or even Matsumoto. I've started reading articles in New Scientist. They said, no, actually it's on Earth. There's some of it here. Maybe it's negligible. Sure. Kind of this creeping thing, Harrison, that you're talking about, kind of gradual uh, contagion. 
of ideas. This is what would be referred to in social science as kind of a contagion, a slow creep of ideas. Gradually, I did it. Dark matter and dark energy are here, whatever they are. And then you have people like Parkham up saying, no, we can create a little telescope. I was trying to look to show his cute little tabletop relic neutrino telescope. He, he could tell by pointing in different directions that there was a direction. It was something flowing into the atmosphere. You're interacting with it more outside, by the way, than inside. And you started seeing, well, people had done research this for decades. New scientists never wrote about Parkhamov, but here's this top level Soviet, former Soviet scientist writing about dark matter. So, so Elon, this is how I got into it. And it only makes sense given that these relic neutrinos are associated with the creation of coherent matter, which is micro ball lightning, ball lightning, cold fusion, Lenner what Ken Shoulders called charge clusters, exotic vacuum objects, or just think about it as like static electricity, organized static electricity. This is what we're talking about. If those folks are saying that this type of coherent matter has an invisible component and is a link to this dark matter universe, and you also read like people like Leah Broussard at Oak Ridge National Laboratories in Tennessee, and you read about their research, they're talking about these mirror universes. In our own space, there are other universes, and they, they're looking for tests you can do with neutrons and things like this to possibly measure that this exists, right? You start seeing this across different sciences, and then you look at the topics that we're interested in, and you say, well, people are reporting these words, space-time distortions around Bigfoot and so forth. Again, and you look at shoulders and broussards and people, and they're talking about dark matter and dark matter universes and parallel realities to, to I guess, the common way to say it. If they're talking about it, and these are cut and dried scientists that, you know, were hired, some of them by their own defense establishments for a while. If they're talking about invisible universes next to us, and you're talking to witnesses, be they UFO witnesses, or the Stan Gordons of the world who have really high credentials in my view, since they've been studying this for decades. And they're talking about people seeing these Bigfoot walking across the field next to the UFOs hovering up there. And then the Bigfoot's gone, just disappears. And you're, you've met witnesses like this who've told you the same thing. You just start to have to wonder in an Einsteinian way, are we talking about the same invisible universes here? Is that what we're talking about? That these invisible universes have their own invisible denizens? who show up here sometimes and we call them cryptids. It's just a kind of open question for me. Again, I'm happy to entertain other explanation, guys, if you think there's a simpler explanation. But for me, with the weight of the evidence and, and researchers who've been looking at this for decades suggest we're dealing with the same invisible universe. I mean, Ramirez calls it stealth plasmas. Shoulders calls it black ball lightning. He said he would see his charge clusters in the lab, lab-produced ball lightning. They would, he has these photos where you see it doing its spiral type thing. They move in these spiral shapes through the air. They're twisting these organized plasmas. And then it's missing. And then it shows up again. He said, where did it go? You see it here. And then it's here on the photo. He's the one, shoulders, who worked for NSA, creating microelectronics, masking techniques for circuit boards in the, in the 60s, I believe. I mean, this is someone that worked for our own NSA. And he's saying there's an invisible universe. These charge clusters can go into another world. We don't see where they go. We can see them emerge again. 
you just have to wonder when you're talking to your Bigfoot witnesses, whether it's not actually an escaped gorilla that they're seeing or a relic primate. It's something that has this ability, like Shoulders is talking about, to go into some other reality where we don't see them for a moment. And they seem to be able to emerge at will. And that would suggest something, again, going back to the beginning of our conversation, like a big blow to the human ego, that there's some other two-legged hominid around that can do something that you can't do, which is it can go invisible. It can morph. Uh, people say they've seen them turn into tree stumps. I mean, it's really weird stuff, but this is what they say. They see turn into boulders, that they have this morphine ability. We, we think about it in terms of the predator movies, you know, this predator ability to go into this other state. And if you think what I'm talking about is science fiction, all you need to do is watch A Flash of Beauty, not because I'm in it, because of those witnesses, especially the witnesses at the end, who literally see, they, they say it, and other people have said this, but here you have them on camera. They saw it go from, I shouldn't say too much because we don't have spoilers here. They saw it, it shapeshift and have orb-like properties. I mean, doesn't that blow you away, guys, when you saw that? I thought, wow, Absolutely. This isn't, they're not just making this up. They're not actually people that are going to go on camera who, by the way, who didn't want to really be known for this, right? That guy, uh, is it Kobe and the other fellow? They're part of a construction yeah. company. They don't need this publicity to make their business better construction, right? So, the, so Elon, the, I got kind of a long answer to your question. This is why, how you start connecting the dots. I'm just saying, if it looks like a duck and acts like a duck, it's a duck. If you think there's something more complex and ghosts have nothing to do with UFOs and have nothing to do with Bigfoot, <coughs> fine, but then present your idea of why the characteristics are often so similar. Let's just take one thing. Temperature changes, sudden temperature changes. You hear this so many times from witnesses, whether it's ghosts, haunted sites, right? A one room in the house will be really cold and it's upstairs. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, you know, UFOs, I've talked to witnesses. They said they had to put their coats on in July in Florida around an object they saw hovering there, sucked all the heat. You go back to Mark McCandlish, bless his soul, he's no longer with us, who looked, who did, you know, illustrations for popular mechanics and had talked to that witness at one of those air shows, the Norton Air Force show, who said that he just, the room, the curtain was drawn back, there were hovering discs at Norton Air Force Base, you know, reverse engineered craft of some type. And the room was really cold, right? And you hear about these cold fusion researchers who tell you that the room got cold or the temperature changed right, right around the reactor. You just have to wonder if it's the same mechanism when we know from the work in coherent matter, coherent matter being the state of matter past plasmas, you know, liquids and solids and gases and plasmas and coherent matters like organized plasma. You get these temperature changes around coherent matter. Lockheed Martin talks about that type of thing in their patent. Right. So when you start doing that, and then you finally come across the Lockheed Martin pen where they talk about coherent matter wave beams and it creates action at a distance and you create it by frequency, right? Resonance. They talk about resonance, not by energy manipulation, by pulling energy out of the system, but getting everything at the same frequency. And you start seeing all these commonalities. I just think it makes sense to say that we're dealing with the same phenomena here. And if you don't agree, create your own alternative explanation. I'm happy to look at it too. Mm -hmm. Well, Simeon, I think uh, you've got to go pretty quick, right? Do you have time for maybe just a, 
A few yeah, more yeah, minutes. Or... Yeah, I think okay. we've opened up a big subject here. Yeah. We only have a few more minutes here. Ask well, away. I know I, I know my answers are kind of long, but there's just so much research that went <laughs> all this. Well, uh, I just wanted to, yeah, like you said, there's so many different uh, different pieces of this puzzle that kind of we can we can talk about or put together, but I wanted to I wanted to maybe um reading your book, I, like a picture kind of formed in my mind and I want to just kind of like uh, share that and maybe, maybe use, uh, I, I want to read one quote from the book and then um, maybe go from there. So it, it was, I, I'd never read much about dark matter. I didn't know, you know, much about it, you know, just the basics, the kind of stuff you might see in a popular science kind of article, but really hadn't thought about it much, had seen references to it and like attempted, you know, debunkings among the kind of uh, electric universe type people. But the idea that, that, that there's uh, a matter that only interacts gravitationally was, was very interesting. Cause like, like, like you said, like the direction my mind was going was this kind of like multiverse type, um, or not, not even necessarily multiverse in the, in the kind of traditional, like what Hugh Everett kind of many, many worlds interpretation of quantum, ph quantum physics, not necessarily that direction, but just this idea of alternate, like invisible dimensions or hyper dimensions that I, I thought, oh, well, yeah, if, if there is matter in potential alternate, you know, realities that might be you know, right next to our, ours, so to speak, maybe they interact, maybe the only interaction there is, is gravitational. That would be interesting. It would be like there's this kind of like electromagnetic curtain between these realities where it's like the you might have you might be able to de to detect a gravitational anomaly. Again, another outlier, another anomaly, <laughs> uh, like a micro gravitational anomaly or something or or a bigger one. And maybe that's something that's going on in a totally different dimension. And then um and then the what you say you there's there's this one um, this one quote, I think, I'm not sure if it's specifically in reference to ball lightning, but ball lightning can be where we go with this. Um, because ball lightning just kind of forms, right? And it's, it's kind of mysterious. Mainstream science doesn't really know what to do with it. They know it exists. They know that, you know, they've got some ideas, but you know, they, they wouldn't really go the, the cold fusion Lenner route yet, just about yet. I don't think. Um, but let me just read this bit from one of the last chapters in the book. Um, you write, okay, no matter which version of the multiverse you adhere to, the implications are that there might be invisible realities all around us that exist separately from ours, but not entirely. So that's basically summarizing what, what you said uh, in the last, uh, last answer you gave. And perhaps this is where cryptids exist, in a parallel reality that interacts with ours from time to time. And coherent matter is the bridge that allows them to travel between parallel wor worlds. At least this is one possibility. So I thought that was one of the coolest, uh, coolest quotes because it's like, um, ball, ball lightning and orbs, you know, maybe they're all, maybe all of these orb like lights are the same thing. Maybe they are ball lightning and maybe ball lightning is just a little bit more mysterious than, uh, than people who you, who talk about it, um, would give it credit for. And so like what's happening there, you've got these, this electromagnetic phenomenon that happens for some reason that creates this ball lightning. Now, what is that ball lightning? Well, then, then you see that then there are numerous accounts and John Keel wrote about this a lot in the, in the seventies. Um, he, he, he would, he was of the opinion that, um, that at, well, at various times that UFOs were just the light, like the light, cause you have the light and then it, it, 
forms into something. Like he thought that the, it was just a light and that kind of put people in a, in a, in a hypnotic trance and they kind of like half hallucinated the, 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 the UFO, which there might be something to that, but it might also be that that, that was the form that it, or the bridge that it used to like enter into on the other side of our half of the electromagnetic curtain. And then using that, co th that coherent matter, it's like have some kind of control over it to then be able to say, okay, now construct this form, construct this body, cr like use this, um, this primal matter that, uh, this primal electromagnetic matter that we, that's it, in this ball to then take this form and it can, you know, take the shape of a UFO, um, depending on what's going on, it, you know, it can take the shape of a bio biological life form. And that maybe, maybe that is one of the kind of reasons why it's so weird. Well, this kind of gets into another topic is that I think that part of the, part of the reason for the denial is that the phenomena themselves, the, the, the intelligence behind it, to some extent, purposefully makes itself as absurd as possible to provoke the exact responses that we're talking about to the point where it's like, okay, so I'm going to, I'm going to show up as like this Bigfoot in a tutu, right? No one is going to believe this guy. And he's going to like, like he, this is going to throw him for a loop. He's, he's like, <laughs> he's going to, he's not going to have a good time with this because he knows what he saw. He can't tell any about uh, anybody about it. If he's forced to tell somebody about it, like he, if he just feels the compulsion to tell somebody about it, they're going to think he's crazy. He might lose his job. It's like, it's, there's this, like, there might be this kind of tricksterish element to the intelligence that, that utilizes this. But anyways, that's a whole nother discussion. The one I wanted, what I wanted to focus on was this ball lightning as the, the bridge or the window itself to this other reality that, that then kind of, um, can be used as the, the primal raw matter to construct, you know, something that we would then see that we can interact with electromagnetically. No, not very well said. Uh, yeah, that is true. And it, it's uh, John Keel was someone I did read the Mothman prophecies as a teenager. Might have been Me the too. only <laughs> years. Yeah, later, I, I, it wasn't like I was consumed by this sort of genre, but I did come across and, then, you know, as a teenager, you know, the Mothman, you'd be just be fascinated, especially growing up from the East Coast, thinking this is just down the road and point pleasant, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, yeah, the ball lightning, it's. It is the key to this because ball lightning, from what we know, is one genre of coherent matter. And coherent matter has this characteristics like you're pointing out. Uh, some people call it prima materia. It's, it's like this primal material that can create anything. And I think Newton was talking about this too. I always used to criticize Newton because, you know, we know he worked on his laws of motion gravity but then people say well he was also an alchemist right and he used his ideas to try to prove that the earth was created in 6006 bc or something like this just the way the, the bible said you know that he had, was a religious fundamentalist so you, you could kind of use these things to kind of criticize him and point out that science has this dual nature but it turns out that newton was right there is a type of alchemical process that can come out of coherent matter. And all you need for that coherent matter is coherency. The particles, rather than being like we see around us, all with unique temperatures and frequencies, being the metals that they are, you know, to do the things that they do, they all sort of give their individuality up as if they're in some sort of communist collective and all march to the tune of this, the exact drummer, not to their own drummer, like we've been brought up in the US, but they're all the same. 
by subtracting energy out of the system. There are a lot of ways to create coherent matter. It The way it works in ball lightning is there just has to be this huge gradient of energy, whether it's from lightning or even tectonic pressure can create ball lightning. It can be created in the lab as Tesla did using a pulse discharge uh, device, pulse discharge generator to slam the electrons into one another through a wire, more than the wire could take. And they bu- they just have to bunch together. When they bunch together in a small space, they naturally become coherent. As we mentioned before, the, the inverse beta decay relic neutrinos also creates monochromatic cold neutrinos, the material for coherent matter. So it's basically just imagining like a flock of birds. In the Lockheed Martin patent, they said the classical analogy would be murmurations of birds. You ever seen birds that look like one flock? You don't see any individuality. They're all kind of like in a wave pattern or schools of fish. That's essentially the analogy for coherent matter is when you get matter to operate like that. Um, it can get this coherency. It was actually discovered down the road here at NIST, National Institute for Standards and Technology, in their University of Colorado branch. It's called Bose-Einstein condensate. Uh, Satyendra Bose wrote to Einstein in the 20s, said, you know, your ideas about quantum photoelectric effect and quantum mechanics suggest that when you cool matter to near absolute zero, the particles should act like one wave. They lose their individuality. Einstein said, hey, you know, you're right. But they couldn't prove it back then. They didn't have the equipment. But here, you know, at NIST, they were able to, I think, rubidium atoms, cool them to near absolute zero. They became like, they become like a wave. But the big news is, and, and other scientists have known this for a long time, you don't need absolute zero to create coherent matter. And that's exactly what Lockheed's telling us in their patent, coherent matter wave beams. Look it up on any of those programs that show you patents online. And if you read through that, they say, you know, we, we can create lasers with ordinary particles. We can do it with fermionic particles, particles that normally uh, don't adhere like electrons. We can create things, they don't call it this, not lasers, but basers. Bosonic uh, coherent matter. Laser stands for, you know, uh, was it light, amplified, stimulated emissions. Um, before lasers were what? Masers. Lasers came out of masers are with microwaves. You can create coherent microwave radiation. Where do you see this? You see this on planets. There's a beautiful photo in Wikipedia, I believe, of is it Saturn or Jupiter of these cool light forms that look at like an aurora over the poles of that planet. If you look for masers, you can find astronomical masers. These are all natural phenomena. They exist in nature and they can be recreated in a lab. And the principle behind this, which makes it so simple, beyond a certain distance, when you put particles together, there is an attractive force that binds the particles together. And as they get bound together with this very strong electromagnetic force, which again, Matsumoto wrote about, this is why his collected papers were called Steps to the Discovery of Electronuclear Collapse. Think black holes, but not gravity, electromagnetic collapses. Beyond a certain point, these particles will cohere in many different ways. And this idea, and I just discovered this a month ago, 
in this translation by Andre Koch Torres Assis, a Brazilian physicist who worked in plasma physics, who studied in UK and has worked in recently in Germany. There was a physicist pre-Maxwell, okay, Wilhelm Weber, who got written out of the textbooks, even though Weber is a magnetic uh, unit of measurement who proposed this exact same idea. He said beyond 10 to the minus 15th, even though they didn't have the microscopes and the equipment back then, he just did it with the math. This is the guy that discovered the speed of light, by the way, to a very close constant way back in 19, 1846, okay? He discovered these laws way before Maxwell or Lord Kelvin or any of these people. He proposed that beyond, very closely packed particles will create negative inertial mass, another type of matter. We, we're used to positive inertial mass, normal objects, you push them, they move away, you hold on to them, they come to, you know, this is the exact opposite. And if you look up negative inertial mass, you find things like Alcubierre warp drives, strange types of matter, exotic physics, and all of these things we've been talking about during this show. And someone discovered it in 1846 using Newton's second law of motion. He just applied Newton's laws of motion. But does it, what happens if it gets very close? And you have these constants in there because there's a numerator and a denominator. All of a sudden, you get these hugely attractive forces, which is exactly what Matsumoto was saying in his writings, that this is the basis of cold fusion. Ken Shoulders, Hal Putoff's colleague for a time, works at SRI. He might have even had something to do with the remote viewing program, but I couldn't see that directly. He said beyond 10 to the minus 10th meters power, power minus 10th, you get these strongly attractive forces. And other people working in this area of condensed matter physics have said the same thing, is you get other states of matter when the particles are really close together. And all you and I were taught about in high school was repulsion of light charges, right? Light charges repulse, opposite charges attract. Not true. Going back to 1846, Weber, who worked with Gauss, we're all familiar with Friedrich uh, Gauss. Gauss and Weber worked together and invented with these ideas, the telegraph. The freaking telegraph, Gauss and Weber. But guess what? There was a competition between the UK and the continent over scientific patents. There was always this competition between Britain and the continent, right? The people who invented the telegraph in Britain, or is it called the UK then, wanted the patents, and they didn't want Gauss and Weber getting the patents who had discovered the telegraph 25 years before, and they literally did everything they could to write them out of the history books, and we lost this attractive uh, force, which leads to what we now call superconductivity. It's just amazing that someone thought of this over 170 years ago. The basis for superconductivity and electromagnetic collapse, the same idea that cold fusion researchers talk about now, and you have people like Shoulders and Matsumoto and others. Um, so to go back to your comment about this, it is a strange type of matter. You read that little quote from the book. Uh, it was the Ukrainian company, Proton21 in their, uh, I believe it's Adamenko and Vysotsky, two researchers from Kiev, 
which we now hear about all the time due to the conflict there that's going on. Um, they said that they had discovered a type of matter. And I'm just going back to your uh, your, your comments about it. That could absorb other types of matter completely. They didn't even know what they invented. This type of condensed matter we're talking when you get particles for whatever way, through pressure, through some sort of a palladium lattice where you can confine the hydrogen atoms. I mean, any sort of system that confines these particles in a small box, as it's called, will create this type of current matter. And Adamenko and, and Vysotsky, in uh, in this interview they did, which uh, you can't, it's only you can find it from the Wayback Machine, describe a type of matter, which is, seems very like some of these UFO encounters with uh, US and Soviet aircraft where they would absorb the shells, like a type of matter that could just absorb anything. They said they didn't know what to call this, but it's like they invented a, a micro black hole. And don't worry, it's not like it's going to take over the universe. They don't, it just it has a very small event horizon and evaporates. That could absorb other types of matter completely is exactly what Shoulders talked about here working in the US. And what happens to Proton 21 labs? It's bought by the Department of Energy and classified. It's moved to Oak Ridge Nash. First, it's moved to Fermi Labs in Illinois, and then ends up in Oak Ridge. They move 100 employees from Ukraine. This is before the, the conflict with Russia that's going on right now. They move this company out of Ukraine, and they buy it and take the website offline and classify it. And it's this type of condensed, collapsed matter that can absorb any other type of matter, generate ball lightning, orbs. So I think we can see where this is going on. And again, um, this is, we're starting to speculate here, but I think given our discussion about UFOs in Congress over the past week or two and so forth, and the whole, what we talked about at the beginning of the show, and this is why it's so important. Seems like the best scientific ideas, not only have they been suppressed for 170 years because of patent wars, because even people like Kelvin had egos and they wanted to be the one to invent the telegraph, that our own Department of Energy the ones that are supporting Leah Broussard to do these research into parallel realities at Oak Ridge, where they're testing new neutron decay rates and things like this. Uh, we haven't heard from her in a while either, for some strange reason, since the new scientist started. We're waiting for the experiment. Here it is. Years are going by. We haven't heard. They literally buy a company doing cold fusion research who says they discovered they Proton 21 Labs had something like 10,000 successful cold fusion experiments in a row, 10,000 successful, something like thousands of man hours of successful sustained cold fusion reactors where more energy is coming out than you're pumping into the, the equipment to make it work. For years, they've got this working. If this is all junk science and pathological science and a hoax, why are they bought by the Department of Energy and taken offline? And you can only find this interview with Adamenko and Vysotsky on the Wayback Machine, <laughs> where they talk about discovering another type of matter. So it's not, you know, Simeon here saying Bigfoot is another type of matter, and I'm pulling that out of nowhere. I'm talking about the best credible lab scientists we have. They're talking about creating another matter. And I'm just saying, well, this is probably what we're dealing with with Sasquatch and Dogman and all these other cryptids that seem to be able to shapeshift and disappear and absorb matter and so forth. It's probably the same stuff that all these people are talking about. Why do they have all these different names for it? 
And someone asked for this the other day, you know, how come the Evos, shoulders called it Evos, and Meziets in Russia called it Ektons, a Tesla called it Radiant Energy. And uh, Shaq Paranov, I've called it Cozy Rev. You've heard of the, the Cozy Rev, uh, uh, the uh, torsion fields and so forth. Yep. Cozy Rev direct monopoles. This produces a very interesting type of magnetism called magnetic monopole, something that Paul Dirac, a, a great physicist that actually moved to this country, uh, talked about. Why do they all call it? These people have all been working in compartmentalized isolation because it's either classified or they just didn't. It's kind of the theme of this interview today. For reasons of professional credibility or something, maybe they didn't talk about what they had discovered and each person thought they had discovered it on their own, only to realize you had shoulders here working on it, Matsumoto and Harkomov and all these people in different countries researching the exact same thing. Basically, various forms, condensed forms of static electricity, kind of oversimplified a little bit, but that's sort of what we're talking about that produces these types of current matter. And we find out that all the governments around the world want to weaponize this and you even have Lockheed patents. And you find the characteristics of this technology is so similar to what we find around these cryptids and UFOs and ghosts. Again, I'm using, uh, Harrison, I'm using their words to describe another type of matter. And you could only say that this is, it exists not just for lab experiments. And this is what I'm suggesting in Dark Matter Monsters. Uh, is that it's not just lab experiments. If we're figuring this out now in this wonderful conversation we're having, and these researchers on their own, in their own countries, are sort of discovering this coherent matter, I'm just coming along looking at the historical record and saying there's probably life forms, plasma life forms, condensed matter life forms that already do this from nature. We're just discovering what nature already has. They probably enjoy being invisible to us. You suggested from John Keel, maybe it's like a trickster. You know, They can play with us. Maybe that's what it is. I'm just saying there's a third party out there, and it's not just ETs. It's something indigenous to the planet. I believe it is. Some people think Bigfoot's an alien or something. I think these are indigenous life forms that have been here the whole time. I think you can even find references to them in the Bibles, You know, going back to Nephilim and uh, Raphaim, these kind of giants and stuff. Uh, Ezekiel, you know, there's a there's a Hebrew word for electricity going back to the book of Ezekiel. We heard about Ezekiel's wheel. So the guess, just to cut it, just to, to summarize, I think we're rediscovering phenomena that have been around for a long time, and modern science gives it new names. And in our current political, you know, global s- scene, there's classification and security considerations. But this is what nature creates. And if nature creates it, there's already life forms out there that uh, exist alongside of us. And I think you could call that, yeah, they exist in a parallel reality. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> well, I think, we'll, I think we'll end it there. Simeon, I mean, there were, uh, we should, end yeah, there were a few other things I wanted to, I, I thought might be fun Save to bring up, but time. yeah, we'll do it another time. So, <laughs> so, Oh, just really quick. Um, maybe tell us, where are the best places to find your work? Maybe like websites, your YouTube channel. And is there anything, any uh, any projects you're working on currently that people can look out for? Uh, sure, thanks. Yeah, the first project I'm working on is to uh, do a revised edition of Black Swan Ghosts. Uh, over the years, I encountered UFO and NHI witnesses. I guess we'd say UAP and NHI now. 
instead of saying UFO and ET, whatever they are. I, I just encountered these people, whether it was in the UK with the crop circles or through remote viewing. And I wrote this book called Black Swan Goes of all these different witnesses, fascinating people, just amazing cases in there. And since 2017, I've have more cases that should be in the book. So I'm doing a revised version of that that'll come out uh, next year, early next year. So that's my project. And so you can look out for a revised version of Black Swan Goes with more incredible cases and people have handled these material stuff we've been talking about today, missile security guards at Minot and, and people that have seen these things in the military and so forth. Uh, my blog is newcrystalmind.com and you can find links to all these books, Dark Matter Monsters. Uh, Dark Matter Monsters has its own website, darkmattermonsters.com. But if you go to newcrystalmind.com, you can find links to these books. I even just put up a link that you can download the ebook right from me if you prefer PDF to any of the other electronic formats, I set up a little store just to instantly download any of these books. Opening Minds, which, as you pointed out, was about RV and crop, you know, resonance and crop circles and so forth. So you can go to New Crystal Mind. You can go to my YouTube channel. I'll just put my name in. Um, I think the official title of the channel is Fractal Friend. And you can connect with me that way. Um, I always like to have witnesses. I've done interviews with them, as you can see on the YouTube channel. That's always a lot of fun. And it's YouTube's just a great resource, I think, for those of us in these fields, because we can really, uh, you know, have a dialogue about this and do live streams. It's quite incredible. So that's the best ways is newcrystalmind.com or my YouTube channel. I do have an RV class coming up, but that's an intermediate class for people uh, if anyone out there already knows the basics of the CRV system, you can take our intermediate class, but it's for people who have basically taken my other beginning classes. And we're, we're going to do that starting in January. Cool. We might have to talk about some, some more like parapsychological stuff next time. So that'll, that'll sure. be happy to. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Simeon Hine, thank you. Uh, author of dark matter monsters, opening minds, uh, and and others so check him out watch his youtube uh videos uh, i i've got queued up the 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 latest one you did with stan gordon so i'll be watching that one next but yeah that was a good one boy yeah, no. stan tell great. the story <laughs> no, it was great talking to you simian thanks a lot, a lot guys i really fun. enjoyed thank it you. thanks talk thanks again. for everybody we'll, talk we'll talk again sometime okay bye, all right bye. Take, take care, care. take care bye